This is Unconcluded, a real-time investigative podcast looking into the 2006 disappearance of Jennifer Kessie in Orlando, Florida. I'm Sean Gerd. Today we are bringing you a bonus episode with the help of a friend who offers an important perspective as we continue to move forward with our investigation. That friend is J. Ryan Green, a real-life PI and someone I've come to rely on over the last few weeks for questions and advice. It's some of those questions that we wanted to share with you in this bonus episode. So let's get started. My name is Jay Ryan Green. I'm a former law enforcement officer and detective. I own Jay Ryan Investigations, which is a private investigation agency located in the state of Florida. Before opening my own investigation agency, I manage several large security and investigative companies. I'm also the host of the podcast Gone at 21, which documents my real investigation into the death of Caitlin Markham from Fairfield, Ohio. To start, I just asked Jay Ryan to give his initial thoughts based on the things that he's heard and the questions that he's asked about the disappearance of Jennifer Cassie, about this case. My general thoughts on this case, first I asked myself, have the police been able to determine an accurate timeline? Timelines are very, very important to the investigation. This can prove or disprove statements made by suspects and witnesses and can confirm movements of the victim. It helps nailing down when and a possible area where a crime occurred. So example, if the police have Jennifer's credit card statements, and there is a purchase at a coffee shop Jennifer stops at on her way to work every day, and it shows her usual large coffee purchase the day she disappeared, and the coffee shop is halfway between Jennifer's house and her office, you could come to the conclusion that Jennifer was not abducted at her condo. This helps narrow down an area between the coffee shop and her office, and the time after the charge for the coffee. It will also lead to the coffee shop employees becoming witnesses. Was she alone? If not, describe the person she was with. So, not just timelines are important. Accurate timelines are very important. And evidence that usually comes with knowing an accurate timeline is also very valuable to the case. But we also have to realize she could have used cash and nothing significantly odd with the phone records. So, as you can see, an accurate timeline, in some cases, is hard to establish, other than knowing what time someone turned off their phone. The second thought is this. Knowing the police didn't release the person of interest video for 17 months after Jennifer went missing, I question if... That is the only footage, or the best footage, they have. After 11 years, it's time to release the important footage, if there is more. At this point, holding back a facial image of the POI would be counterproductive and just bad police work. Keeping it as a card in the hand, so to speak, the time for that has passed. If you show the public the important parts of the video, you can still use it in an interrogation 
or as evidence in court. It's a photo of the POI's face that's big. It would be hard for a defense attorney to fight that if it's a decent picture. And that depends on the video quality. There is a chance another camera could have picked him up and shows his identity with better clarity. It would make sense to show the public and get assistance identifying him. After you identify the person of interest, then evidence collection starts. This obviously only applies if the police have more footage. My gut tells me that is very possible. The third thing, a more in-depth look at the neighbors, condo employees, also the contractors and their employees that were on the property in 2006. The police probably already have this information. In that case, I would suggest re-interviewing those people. And I would bet the police have already done this or are in the process of doing this. The fourth thing, was Jennifer involved in something her family didn't know about? Maybe only a select number of friends knew about it. And it doesn't have to be illegal, but piecing together that information can widen the witness pool, which in turn brings out more information that may help solve the case. So we need to know that. Last, is there a possibility Jennifer could have been mistaken for someone else that lives in the area and led a high-risk lifestyle? It happens more than you think. So that really needs to be looked into as well because there's something they're missing. That's why it, this case has been unsolved for over a decade. I originally started talking with Jay Ryan as I was navigating the different witness accounts you've heard over the last several weeks. As someone with experience in these matters, I wanted his thoughts and opinions on the Tennessee jewelry store incident. Unfortunately, I believe Jennifer probably already met her demise before those individuals were seen in the Tennessee jewelry store. I hate to say that, but knowing what I know about Jennifer, she probably wouldn't have lasted long in a captive situation, if that was what happened. Jennifer was a smart young lady. She was a young professional manager, so she was no dummy, and probably wouldn't have been controlled very easily. Her life doesn't seem, at least from what I know about her, to have the vulnerabilities consistent with human trafficking victims. It doesn't mean it couldn't happen, but the chances of Jennifer being a victim of human trafficking is very slim. She would be too high of a liability for traffickers. Of course, I also got his take on the Northridge apartment incident, in which Erica says she saw Jennifer on two separate occasions. I believe Erica when she said Jennifer was in her office, but verifying that story 11 years later would be almost impossible. I'm sure the sales team purges sales and rental leads within a short amount of time, especially being in the apartment rental business. It's a quick turnaround because people are looking to rent soon and are going to be signing a lease within several months, in most cases. As far as the disturbance Erica witnessed, it can't be verified that that was Jennifer. Unless it was confirmed to be Jennifer, you have to leave the door open for the abductor to look a different way than described. The disturbance could have been something totally different, 
if you have tunnel vision, that was the suspect. He looked a certain way, and you're keyed in on that description without knowing for sure it was Jennifer that was involved in the altercation, you would be doing Jennifer an injustice. I also asked Jay Ryan about the possibilities of other witnesses still being out there and how likely it would be to get them to come forward after all this time. There may be several people that know what happened to Jennifer. Maybe someone helped after the fact but didn't realize it until it was too late. People talk, people brag. Whether they assisted with the actual crime or helped after the fact, you may find that hard to believe, that people brag and talk about their crimes, but they do. Investigators have to realize people also change. Their priorities change, they settle down and have kids, and with that comes a more reliable source of information than what they had 11 years ago when they didn't want to rat out their friends. People also move away and are not in close contact with the person or people who committed the crime, so the fear of talking wouldn't be as high as it was in 2006. You can bet those individuals that participated in this crime, in whatever capacity, think about the crime and their actions on a regular basis. It's probably eating them up inside. If that is the case, they have probably confided in people closest to them, such as a wife, girlfriend, brother, sister, close friend, whatever the case may be. Those people that have been told have to be willing to talk and to tell what they know. Unfortunately, something significant has to happen in that relationship for those individuals to talk. A breakup, a divorce, a disagreement, where close friends part ways. Those events take time to occur. So, re-interviewing witnesses many years later and those who are close to them at the time of the crime is crucial. I followed up asking, if he had been hired to investigate this case, how would he approach it? Sean, it's hard to start an investigation after 11 years when there have been so many hands in it. You don't know what was done or what people said 11 years ago, so I would start fresh. I would interview and investigate my way out, meaning I would start with the people closest to Jennifer. Family, her ex-boyfriend, her current boyfriend at the time she disappeared, uh, friends, co-workers, possible love interests, or people who were pursuing Jennifer. Uh, then work my way out. Ideally, former neighbors, individuals who worked at the apartment complex she lived at. There was construction going on at that complex, so what companies were on the property during the renovations and who was working for those companies. Then to sexual predators, violent offenders living near Jennifer in 2006. Now, there are times as a PI where I deal with a suspect or family member where you have one shot to interview them because of their personality or they are highly suspicious of you uh, or they are dependent on certain people in their lives for advice. So in that case, where I have one shot, uh, I would work my way into that specific person, not only to obtain as much information 
that I can about the case, but also the targeted individual and possibly to get help from someone that that person trusts, uh, maybe to vouch for me as being okay to talk to. In some cases, that friend contacts the target person for me. So it's not like I'm cold calling him and surprising him with, with a call. Um, as a private investigator, you have to learn to adjust to circumstances surrounding the case. Each case is different, as are the witnesses involved in that case. If you make the wrong choice early in your investigation, you can jeopardize losing other witnesses talking to you, which means you will lose out on their statements and possible information that could lead to new evidence in the case. To wrap it all up, I asked Jay Ryan one last question. What was it going to take for this case to move forward? Witnesses. Witnesses are the key. I believe that there is someone out there that knows what happened to Jennifer, whether it's first or secondhand information, that will ultimately lead to Jennifer and her abductor. You know, you got to think, give the poor family answers. Hopefully the Kessies will get the peace in knowing what happened to Jennifer and will be able to bring her home. If you're that one person that knows something, call the Orlando Police Department and speak to the detective in charge of the case. We have already learned calling the tip line doesn't work. Call the detective. If you want a liaison between you and the police, contact Sean or Scott. But whatever you do, just call. Many of the things that J. Ryan mentioned were things we were already considering, or actions we were already taking. But I've also been able to consider new directions and look at things through a different lens based on his answers to these questions and our other conversations. I do want to clarify that in some of his answers, J. Ryan was giving examples, not facts, such as the credit card and coffee shop example. These aren't facts or events that are known to this case, just examples that J. Ryan was using to illustrate his point. Before we go, there's a few specific things that he mentioned that I do want to discuss. First, the timeline. This is one of the most important things in an investigation. And in this particular case, there's still so much of it that's unknown. But over the course of this podcast, we've been able to clear up a little bit. And we've been able to add to the known facts. In the coming days, we'll be putting an updated timeline on our website. We hope that it will make it easier for all of us as we continue to move forward. We will include the known factual information, but also have notations for possible additional timeline events that have come up. Secondly, remember when J. Ryan mentioned that it needed to be considered if Jennifer could have been mistaken for someone else? Well, I need to fill everyone in. At the time of her disappearance, there was another woman in Orlando who looked very similar to Jennifer. And this woman led the high-risk lifestyle that J. Ryan mentioned. 
She was a prostitute. In the days and weeks that followed Jennifer's disappearance, this particular person was often mistaken for Jennifer, leading to confusion among witnesses and authorities. So what if this particular person, for whatever reason, stealing drugs for example, was the target instead of Jennifer? That could potentially change the entire focus of the investigation, and it's something we're currently looking into. We'll be back in just a handful of days with episode 6. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of them at UnconcludedPod. And also, join the conversation on the Unconcluded Podcast discussion group on Facebook. And last but not least, don't forget to check out J. Ryan Green on his podcast, Gone at 21, which you can find on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you download your podcasts.